Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The air was thick with grief. The falling leaves and the cold October air only added to the somber tone. A woman stood facing a gravestone with her hair thin gray. Her eyes puffed up, her hands shaking. She couldn't believe that he was gone. He had been sick for the better part of two years, and while taking care of him as he became weaker and weaker had taken a toll on her, she hoped that her husband would somehow recover returned back to his normal self. It had been so long since he was his quote normal self that the old woman questioned if she even remembered him as he truly was back then. Perhaps she was romanticizing the man that she had called her husband for over 58 years. Standing next to her were her two sons who resembled their father so much that it only caused their mother more grief. As the boys stood next to their mother in their black and white suits, with their family standing off in the distance, one of them began shaking his head. After a few seconds, he softly said, Can't believe that he never told us. Mom, you you had to have known, right? Asked the other son. Their mother shook her head. The 60-year-old sons continued to stare in confusion. And after another moment of pause, one of them said, I knew the man my whole life. I thought I knew him better than anyone. Yet I never knew that he was in World War II. Air Force at that. He always told us that he was, well, that he was the way he was because of the car accident, the other son said. And that's what he told me too. And for him to put his... Bomb squadron on his tombstone must have meant a lot to him, the mother retorted as a tear fell down her cheek. On the tombstone was a large emblem of the air medal, and underneath it were the words, quote, Survive the cold blue, 300th Bombardment Group, 530th Bombardment Squadron, 1944, 1923 to 2016. Husband and father, Timothy P. Winger.
73 years earlier, May 15th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0456. Timothy was sitting in the briefing room with Sal to his left and Jack to his right. His body was still aching from the day before. His hands had blisters and scuff marks on them from moving jagged pieces of rubble and bricks. Worse off were his feet. The sides of his big toes were rubbed so raw that when he took off his socks, the fabric had become stuck to the sensitive skin. Luckily for him, wearing flate boots meant that he could wear double socks and have more room for his feet and more padding. Plus, standing up wasn't going to be a requirement of him over the next 6 to 12 hours. Looking up at the board, Timothy didn't like what he was seeing. The 300th was selected to fly in the low wing of the 4th group in the formation, and the 530th squadron was selected to fly in the low squadron of the low wing, in what was referred to as Coffin's Corner. He and the rest of Loda Bull would be leading the 530th squadron with Tailwinders flying in the number 2 spot, Bad Penny in the number 3 spot, Hellfire from above in the low number 4 spot, Bob McGee in the number 5 spot, and finally, Grey Thunder in the number 6 spot. To make matters worse, according to the flight roster, the boss would be flying as pilot in Loda Bull, and the crew was noticeably nervous because of this, especially Jack. Looking over at his pilot, he could see the laser-like focus in his eyes as he studied the flight board. He could also see the fear and anxiety that was begging for attention. That was when one of Jack's friends appeared behind him as he and the rest of his crew sat down in the row located directly behind Loda Bull. Good morning, Nietzsche, said the friend. Unfortunately, Timothy was unable to remember what the man's name was. All he knew was, the man and his co-pilot looked so much like each other that it was amazing that they weren't related. Keeping his eyes locked onto the front, Jack responded with, Morning. Rather late, don't you think? Sitting down, the friend replied with, Oh, is anyone truly ready for another day of shit? Well, get ready because you're my number three wingman today. After hearing this, Timothy looked up at the board and connected that the man talking to Jack was Lieutenant Booker, or as he was referred to as, Tango. As Tango and Jack talked, Timothy's attention was moved over to a group of men sitting in the front row. The group were the four officers from the crew of Bomb McGee. The four men were wearing their worn A2 leather bomber jackets with their nose art painted on the back, and the 25 yellow painted bombs on both the top and the bottom of the logo were visible. The colorful jackets were like a museum piece that were so well done and iconic. The sight of that many yellow painted bombs was almost fictitious to Timothy. To his knowledge, there were only four crews in the entire 300th bombardment group whose mission counts were in the 20s. Bob McGee was in the lead with 25 completed missions. Roosevelt's revenge from the 531st Squadron was at 24 missions. Timothy had so far only flown two missions, and he couldn't believe that there were still 28 more ahead of him. In light of what he saw the day before, 
Timothy couldn't begin to fathom how he was going to mentally be able to handle the job given to him. Why couldn't he have just been selected to be a navigator or a co-pilot, he thought to himself. Why did he have to be in a position where his job was to hit a toggle switch that sent thousands of pounds of ordnance onto people down below? He just wanted to do his job to the best of his ability and go home. He didn't want to live with the guilt of what his job entailed. Looking over to Sal, Timothy couldn't help but envy him. Sure, his job was extremely stressful. Keeping a navigational heading while being shot at is a taxing and difficult thing. However, unless a mistake is made, there's no guilt that comes with doing that job well. Sure, he still had to fire his guns at a human, but that human would be in another plane trying to actively kill him. That's why Sal seemed to have no guilt when he shot that German plane down. It was justified. For Timothy, though, those people down below, they didn't do anything to him. They weren't actively trying to kill him. Hell, the people in those factories weren't strapping on helmets and guns and killing innocent civilians. They were just going to work to feed their families. And again, even if Timothy did his job 100% perfect, bombs would still fall on innocent people and leveling innocent homes. Timothy's thinking was interrupted by everyone standing up at attention as Colonel Poole walked in and walked up to the stage. As the men sat back down, Colonel Poole gave his go-get-em speech and then revealed the day's mission, which was to bomb the rail junction in Dijon, France. Captain Burnett stepped up to the stage and explained the very complex and very meticulous flight plan. Today, over 1,700 heavy and medium-sized bombers would be in the air, bombing targets all throughout France, Belgium, and Germany. The 1,000-plus heavy bombers would be broken up into five units, each one made up of 12 bombardment groups, each flying their standard high, lead, or low wing in their group. All in all, each unit would consist of 55-plus bombers. Unit A, which consisted of B-17s, would be sent to bomb a rail junction in Reims, France, at 0945. Unit B, which consisted of B-24s, would be sent to bomb a munitions factory in Le Mans, France, at 1000 hours, and would fly along with Unit A until they reached the decision point, and they would break off and head to their selected targets. Unit C, which was made up of B-24s, had the unfortunate job of acting as a decoy, as they were supposed to act like they were going to bomb Paris, but would simply fly over the city, produce a fake bombing run, and then on the way back, hit their actual target, which were the gun emplacements outside of the town of Caen, France. Unit D, the unit the 300th would be flying in, would head to Dijon and bomb their target at 0955. This unit would be the first to take off, first to arrive over France, and would be the last to return as they had a longer distance to travel to get to their target, which was just over a thousand miles. The final unit, Unit E, which was made up of more B-17s, were selected to bomb a rail line just outside of Liège, Belgium. Other units this morning consisted of B-25s, B-26s, and A-20s, which were all headed to bomb rail junctions, bridges, armored depots, gun emplacements, airfields, and factories in cities like Calais, Mons, 
Oldenburg, and Emden. After this information was given, Captain Burnett ordered for the lights to be turned off, and the overlay projector was turned on, showing a picture of the target set for today. The target looked like a generic aerial photograph of a rail yard. Buildings, rail lines, an oblong-shaped shadow cast from tankers and boxcars infested the area. To the west of the large park and to the east were rows of what looked like houses. As Timothy stared at those houses, he knew that regardless of how accurate the bombing was going to be today, those houses would not be left standing by the end of the day. Who lived in those buildings, he thought to himself. Will they leave when they hear the sounds of engines roaming overhead? How many houses would he level today? Houses that were built to cultivate and host good and wholesome memories. He remembered how much thought, passion, care, blood, sweat, and tears went into his house back home. He remembered his father and his three uncles helping him in the construction. Each room and each wall was planned meticulously. In fact, when the house was done, his mother told him, quote, Now there is a monument to your father and his handiwork that will last longer than him or us. These houses, the three dozen or so above the target, or at least what was captured in the picture, all of that was to be decimated as well as the men who built them. Their wives, their children, they all would be ruined, blown apart by his hands. Before he knew it, the lights came back on. Burnett, using his pointer stick, explained the mission's expectations and such. The consensus was, since there were five sorties being carried out today across Europe, the Luftwaffe would be divided in their attacks, and because of that, the 300th and the rest of Unit D would be expected to see light amounts of fighter opposition, especially since Unit D would be gifted two squadrons of P-51s to escort the bombers to and from the target. The other good news is, the target, since it was so far south, intelligence predicted that flak would be mild, even light and inaccurate. However, judging by the other airmen's reactions, apparently there was plenty of skepticism due to experience and cynicism. And while Timothy understood their reactions, he chose to be hopeful. Soon, the briefing was over, and Timothy then went to his navigator's briefing. After that, Timothy made his way over to the troop truck, and to his surprise, his crew wasn't in a troop truck, but instead a jeep. Sitting in the driver's seat was a happy and proud Jack, who wore a grin that went from one ear to the other. Standing around the jeep was everyone except the boss, Sergeant Hilliard, and Sergeant Miller. Arriving at the jeep, Timothy looked to Sal and asked him, The jeep? Yep. Two uh, troop trucks got stuck in the mud and Jack was able to get his hands on this, Sal said pointing to Jack, who held the wheel of the jeep with such vigor and authority. How are we all going to fit on this thing? Good thing, Captain... The boss and Sergeant Hilliard and Sergeant Miller aren't here. Are, are they meeting us there? Timothy asked. Beans and Mills are chatting up with the guys from uh, Tailwinders. And the boss? Oh, I don't know where he is, responded Willie. He's already at the plane, Jack responded. Why, because he's too good to ride with the rest of us? Asked Tommy. Tommy, your hut is one thing, 
but I will not have that kind of talk about a superior officer, especially one we will be flying with today, spoken to my jeep. Is that clear? Jack commanded. Yes, sir. Tommy mumbled back, his face looking shocked. Soon, Jack aimed his head around to face Tommy, who was standing by the rear passenger wheel, and gave him a grin and a wink, much to Tommy's amusement. Now, to answer your question, we're going to pile on this thing and hope the wheelers don't give out, commented Willie. Make Booth walk. We won't have to worry about that, poked Marshy. Shut up, Marshy. The only thing saving you is the fact that your head is made of wood and is hollow. Booth fired back. Hey, uh, here comes Ding and Bat, called out Sal, who saw Beans and Mills approaching the jeep. Soon, the men gathered their bags, additional flight clothes and equipment, and piled on the back and front of the jeep, with Sal sitting in the passenger seat. Jack turned over the jeep's engine, and soon, the ridiculous band of airmen were off to their hard stand, where the boss was waiting for them, with looks of annoyance and worry on his face. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force from World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. About two and a half hours later, the formation was flying past the French village of Heston, which was just 20 miles off the French coast. So far, the mission was uneventful and smooth sailing. Not a single plane had aborted or collided, and the escort fighters had met the bombers on their route nearly 15 minutes early. The men on board the bull were on edge, though, mainly because of their position in the formation. It had been a while since they had flown in Coffin's Corner, and being at the back of the formation, with almost no coverage to their 6 o'clock, made men like Marshy especially terrified and on edge. Up in the cockpit, the tension was noticeable between Jack and the boss. All throughout the pre-flight checklist, the boss and Jack hardly spoke directly to one another unless it was in regards to the checklist. The boss didn't even do a mini-briefing huddle just before takeoff like Jack was accustomed to doing. He just said over the intercom during assembly, the usuals, don't waste ammo, call out fighters, keep the intercom clear, and so on. Men like Timothy felt even more on edge because the boss and Jack were not interacting or talking to one another. Looking over at Sal, Timothy could see that he was trying to keep his mind occupied by looking over his flight map constantly and checking his heading. Looking forward, Timothy scanned the skies with his chin turret gun sight, and sure enough, right on cue, the call came in. We got bandits coming in, five o'clock level. The call came in from Beans. Timothy clenched his gun controls tightly and waited for the fighters to start attacking and come within his range. Soon, Timothy could hear gunfire from other planes, and the intercom roared with his crew members calling in fighters. From the sounds of it, these were four squadrons of 109s, to which the escort fighters were having a field day with. 
In just two seconds, two 109s were sent down to Earth, one of them by an escort. Then, a 109 zipped past the front of the plane, and Timothy nearly jumped in his seat with surprise. He aimed his gun upward and began firing at the passing fighter. The 109 soon disappeared, and in the midst of a stressful and exciting moment, Timothy heard a call come over the intercom. I got him! I got him, you son of a bitch! The voice came from none other than Tommy. Stop yelling over the intercom, commanded the boss. I confirmed it, Tommy. That was a nice shot, right between his eyes, commented Beans. Thank you, sir. Now, let me get another one. Everyone coming around, three o'clock high. Again, that's three o'clock high, exclaimed Willie. Timothy looked over to his right and waited to see the fighter pass by. As he did, that's when he heard another call come over the intercom. Bills, 12 o'clock. The call was from Jack. Timothy looked ahead and nearly leaped out of his skin as he saw the 109, which was now trailing oil and smoke, heading right for him. Swinging his sights in the vicinity of the incoming fighter, he pressed down on his trigger and soon the fighter banked downward after shooting off a line of fire that missed the bull. Out of the corner of his eye, Timothy saw the 109 that Willie had called in zip past him as he dove downward after letting off a stream of bullets at the bombers in front of them. Nose, keep your eyes open and call out those fighters, commanded the boss. Great. Sorry, sorry. Timothy called out before looking back at Sal, who was manning his left side cheek gun. Sal's eyes were laden with fear, and before Timothy could say anything else, that's when another call came in over the intercom from Tommy. What am I coming around? Sir, so pass. Seven o'clock level. If you don't get on my sheet, I will. yelled Marshy, which was soon followed by Mills skeptically saying, Can someone confirm that? I saw it. It was all him. Man, that was beautiful. Commented Tommy. Hey, that's too fresh. That's how it's fucking done. Exclaimed Willie. Keep the intercom clear, goddammit. Yelled the boss. Soon, Timothy couldn't see any more fighters making passes. The only fighters he could see flying past his line of sights were escort fighters. A minute later, it was announced that the fighters had officially left and the skies were once again clear. Minutes later, Sal would announce that the formation was arriving at their third waypoint. Hey guys, Seth Aaron here. Yesterday, on November 12th, 2022, at an air show in Dallas, Texas, a tragic and horrific event took place in which the famed B-17 named Texas Raiders and a Bell P-63, both which were commissioned under the Commemorative Air Force down in Texas, collided during the air show in which spectators witnessed the horrific incident that killed everybody on board both Texas Raiders and the pilot of the Bell P-63. I gotta say, this one hurts. Not just because we lost two valuable pieces of history that will never be replaced. They're gone forever now. But more so because those who died in the incident were people just like us. People who have a love of history. People who have an admiration for the brave men who flew these planes in combat, risked their lives for the sake of their country. These individuals wanted nothing more than to make history come alive for the next generation. And unfortunately, they gave their lives in pursuit of that dream and that goal. 
If you're new to Snafu and you're new to the world of historical warbirds, then you know by now that we love talking about the machines. We love talking about the planes. We love talking about the weapons and we love talking about the tactics. But here's the thing. And in instances like this, I'm reminded of the fact that the reason why those things are even worth talking about is not the things themselves, but because of the people that those items are attached to. The planes would not be worth talking about if it weren't for the lives of the men who flew them. Their story is the reason why we love the planes so much. The reason why we love talking about these things is because of the stories that are behind it. Behind every plane is a life that's worth talking about. It's a story that's worth sharing. It's a tear that must be shed because if we don't, then who will? And that also applies for the men and women who operate these warbirds well after their time in combat. The reason why these planes were even in the air is because of the devoted people who have given up so much time and resources to make that happen. And it's such a tragedy that it took the lives of those people. Today, we pray for the families of those lost. Families of passionate people just like you and me. The families of those who are now going to have to forever mourn the loss of their loved one. And as you listen to the rest of the episode, give thanks to the brave young men who fought in the skies of Europe in World War II, and give thanks to those who helped keep those memories alive. Thank you for your time. Now let's get back to the podcast. It had only been a half hour since the fighters had left, and only five minutes since the formation had reached the decision point, and so far the mission was going according to plan without any issues. The skies below them were for the most part clear, with the exceptions of thick white clouds that hung off to the east. Luckily, they were too far from them, and their intended path imposed no threat. From where Timothy was sitting, the dreamy-like morning clouds were mesmerizing to look at. Unfortunately, this morning Timothy had no time or headspace to focus and think about clouds. He had a bomb run to prepare for. According to Sal, the IEP was just five minutes away, and while Timothy was not going to be leading the bomb group today, he still wanted to make sure he was ready. Looking over his bomb site, Timothy wiped his bomb site of any moisture that could be frozen to it, and it would therefore obstruct his sight. But to his surprise, he heard, Navigator the crew, we're at the IP. Come from Sal. Looking at his watch, Timothy couldn't believe that five minutes had passed, and soon, bomb doors from other bombers began opening. Timothy leaned over to the bomb bay door lever and slid it to the open position and called out, Bombardier the crew, bomb bay doors open. We're on the bomb run. Roger that. Pilot to Bombardier. We're turning on the idle pilot. She's all yours. Timothy then looked down at his bomb site and attempted to find the target himself, but was unable to, since they were a bit too far for him to make out the train station that they were supposed to bomb. As Timothy continued looking for the target, that's when the sound of flak began thundering off in the air. It's flak two o'clock high. Yeah, no shit, Willie. Joked Mills. 
Keep the intercom clear. Everyone, get your flap jackets on. Commented the boss. Already done, boss. We've done this a few times now. Mills called in, much to Timothy's surprise, since it sounded like Mills was being disrespectful to the boss. However, there was nothing but silence that came from the cockpit. All that could be heard were flak shells going off. Looking down again, Timothy kept looking for the target, and sure enough, he could now make out the large train station and depot in the distance. It was at this moment that Timothy wished that he were leading the formation on this mission, since the target was so far away and so clearly visible. It would take a monumental mistake for their bombs not to hit the target today. Locking the crosshairs onto the target, Timothy now watched to make sure that the rest of the formation was heading on the same path that he was on. For now, they were. That's when Timothy felt someone nudging him on his shoulder. Turning around to see who it was, he was surprised to see Sal with his mask pulled down. What are you doing? Just release it when everyone else releases. Pulling his mask down as well, Timothy yelled back, Just let me do my fucking job, Sal. You don't see me telling you how to navigate. Sal shook his head and returned back to his navigator's desk. As they got closer to the target, the flak picked up and was getting more accurate. B-17 going down, turn the flak high. Called in Jack. Quickly looking up, Timothy could see a B-17 from the high wing in the second group with an engine on fire heading down towards Earth. Suddenly, a flak shell exploded right next to Loaded Bull's waste compartment. Mills, Beans, and Tommy each spoke up saying that they were alright. Then, another flak shell exploded just under the bull, lifting it up and throwing Timothy's bombsite off course. Cussing under his breath, he reset the settings, adjusted the wind drift, tailwind and such, and they seemed to be flying in the same direction and path that the rest of the group was flying on. While Timothy was doing this, calls were coming in that Bomb McGee had been hit, and a trail of smoke was billowing from its number three engine. Shortly after, it was reported that the smoke had dissipated. Timothy now had to keep his mind focused on his target. If the formation changed course even by a millimeter, he wanted to know. Sure enough, he could see the entire formation, including the planes from the 300th, flying in the high and lead squadrons of the formation, slowly veering off to the right. Timothy's heart began to race. As he waited to see if the formation was going to correct course, that's when the boss called in. Pilot to Bombardier, why the hell are we breaking formation? Because they're going the wrong way. Timothy quickly responded. Excuse me? I said they're going the wrong way, sir. How do you know this, Lieutenant? Because I locked my bombsite onto the target myself, just to double check, sir. Well, perhaps your calculations are off. Uh, I don't think so, sir. I have faith in my ability. There was an uncomfortable moment of silence over the intercom. Only thing that could be heard were the sounds of exploding flak shells and roaring engines. As Timothy waited for a response from the boss, all Timothy could think about was the family that he had pulled from the rubble the day before. Even at 24,000 feet, the sharp pain of his blisters on his hands and his feet could still be felt and now were even pulsating. Each wound was a dim reminder of the hurt he had witnessed. Seeing the formation drifting off down the wrong course filled Timothy up with a deep feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. 
he knew that every one of those planes were either going to have to redo the bomb run, this time on the correct path, head to a different target, such as their secondary target, which was in Luxembourg, or they would just unload their bombs on a target of, quote, opportunity. Looking back at Sal, Timothy noticed that Sal had his eyes closed and his hands clenched onto his navigator's desk as he waited for an answer as well. Seeing Sal in a state of pure fear made Timothy feel even more uneasy. That's when the boss said over the intercom, Keep on our course. Pilot to radio. Signal that the lead ship is off course. Tell them to head for course 136. Again, that's 136. Roger that. Muth replied back. What? We're going in alone? Asked Willie. Do you have a problem with that sergeant? Asked the boss. No, I was just, just wondering. Willie remarked. Timothy was stunned. He knew that if his calculations were just the slightest bit off, they would be the ones off course and the boss would get a black mark on his record for sure. As flak shells continued exploding all around him, that's when Jack called in over the intercom that the rest of the formation was not changing their course. Timothy, at this moment, couldn't think about what the other formation was doing. As of now, it was just the 530th squadron going in at the target alone. Looking back down through the bomb site, Timothy saw that the target was less than a minute away. Sweat poured from his forehead and his hands, even in the below freezing temperatures. The bomb site needle ever so slowly crawled down the line towards the target point, and as it did, tension rose among the crew. This was it. The flak was starting to pick up. Just then, the call came over the intercom. Formation is changing course. They're heading for the target now. The call was from Muth. Timothy had his hands on the bomb toggle switch, waiting for the needles to meet. Timothy yelled out, flicking the switch. One by one, bombs fell from Lota Bull and the rest of the 530th Squadron. Quickly, the boss took the controls back and directed the lone squadron towards the original rally point, but at a slightly faster speed. Increasing the bull's speed by even 10 knots, Lota Bull's airframe shuddered. With bomb doors now closing, the crew of Lota Bull could see the rest of the formation heading into their direction ready to bomb a target as well. Timothy, while relieved that he had gotten the hardest part of his job over with, he was now filled with anxiety about how his bombing was. He knew that his calculations were correct. He knew that he had dropped the bombs damn near perfectly. Now, he just had to wait for the call. Soon, Tommy called in. We let him up! Holy shit, we did it! Now let's get the fuck home! Roger that. Jack replied. Timothy now was relieved fully. He sat back in his seat, almost pleased with himself. He had done good. He had not failed himself, his crew, or the boss. He had done the right thing. Sliding the bomb bay doors closed, he now felt Lota Bull bank as the boss headed to the rally point. Even with flak still going off around him, Timothy slid his chin turret gun sight back over, and he firmly gripped the gun controls, ready for the flak to stop the fighters to come attacking. Then...
Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Sal was sitting in his navigator's seat trying to keep his composure. Looking over at Timothy, he could see him sliding his gunner's control arm back over in front of him, and with it, his gun sight. Then, as though God had it planned that Sal's eyes were meant to be directly focused on Timothy at this exact moment, he watched as the flak shell explode just in front of the nose cone. In one flash and bang, what seemed like a thousand handfuls of gravel were thrown at the plexiglass and surrounding metal. Turning away from the sudden blast, Sal thought for sure that he had been hit. Looking down, he saw blood splattered on the outer side of his right thigh. Assuming it was his, he began looking over his leg, but soon, at the corner of his eye, saw a shadowy figure moving where Timothy was sitting. Looking over, he saw Timothy hunched over in his chair, but something was very, very wrong. Timothy's left foot had been blown off at the ankle, and a significant sized wound was cut into his left upper arm. That's when Sal realized that the blood on his leg was that of Timothy. Calling it in, Sal went over to tend to Timothy, who was in a state of shock. Timothy's eyes were locked onto his severed foot, which was sitting next to his bomb site, his foot still in place in his flight boot. Sal attempted to lift Timothy out of his seat, but was having trouble, especially since Timothy's body was stiff and almost dead weight. Quickly, Willie was down in the nose and arrived behind Sal, and together, the two men lifted Timothy out of his chair and sat him down along the right side of the nose, just under the cheek gun. Once they did, Sal saw that there were small puncture wounds in Timothy's May West vest, about five or so. One of them was dangerously close to his heart. Sal began to quickly undress Timothy's upper part of his body so he could see what the wound looked like on the skin. Looking to Willie to ask him if he could take care of his foot, he was astonished to see Willie almost masterfully using Timothy's scarf as a tourniquet around Timothy's wound. Opening Timothy's jacket and pulling down his undershirt, that's when Sal saw that Timothy's chest wounds were not as bad as he thought. The one that looked so close to his heart was too high to be his heart, plus Timothy wasn't dead. Feeling better, Sal then closed Timothy's jacket proceeded to put his equipment back on. That's when Sal heard the boss calling to him over the intercom. Pilot's the navigator. Are you still able to use the chin turn? Sal quickly got up, sat down in Timothy's seat, and once again saw the bloody stump of a foot sitting next to the shot-up bombsite. Trying to focus and get the grotesque image out of his mind, he attempted to move the chin turret, and sadly, nothing moved, only the controls. The headset which was connected to the turret itself, was not working. Navigator to pilot, that's a negative. Roger that. 
Head back to your station, Lieutenant. Sergeant Abram will take care of Lieutenant Winger. Well, roger that. Sal replied as he now headed to his navigator's desk once again and tried to locate their current position. Soon, the boss announced that the rest of the formation had bombed the target and were now going to be approaching them from behind, and Loda Bull, along with the rest of the 530th Squadron, would have to slow down their airspeed enough to fall back to their respective position. However, in order to do this, the boss decreased their altitude by a thousand feet as to ensure that none of the other bombers would collide with them, and they would be at least 800 feet between them and the lowest flying bomber in the formation. Meanwhile, the flak still raged on, even more so now that the 530th was a slow-moving duck in a field of vengeful hunters. The flak had come to a stop 25 minutes ago, and the group had reached the rally point just 22 minutes ago. Now they were approaching their fifth waypoint, which was 25,000 feet above the Mormal Forest in France. The skies were empty, with the exception of the escort fighters. Sal was back at his cheek gun and was periodically checking on Timothy, who was still in shock. He was subtly responding to questions asked to him, and his pupils were dilating to the changing light. Willie had long since returned to his top turret, and once he did, that's when Jack informed the crew of Timothy's condition. Sal, trying to help his buddy out, made sure his audio cord was unplugged so he could not hear how bad it was. Since Sal wasn't a doctor, and only had a sloppy first aid training that he attained at a YMCA back home, he guessed that Timothy was going to make it back to base. But unfortunately, the rest of the crew didn't seem so hopeful, which made him nervous. Thinking he saw Timothy move, Sal quickly went over to his crew member and saw that his face looked suddenly alert. Quickly going over to him, Sal asked him how he felt. With pure terror and fear in his eyes, Timothy asked what happened. Is everything okay? Jack asked after hearing the conversation over the intercom. Yeah, I think Timothy just came too. Sal replied before he answered Timothy's question. You got hit, buddy. They're looking good, though. We're almost at the next waypoint. We're, uh, about an hour and a half from home. We're gonna get you home, and you're gonna be, uh, snug as a bug in the arms of a beautiful white cross woman. Timothy's eyes looked almost glazed over, as the large amount of information seemed too much for his brain to process. He went back to staring at the floor in a lifeless manner, but still breathing and blinking his eyes. Not knowing what to make of this, Sal proceeded to head back to his navigator's desk and prepared for the upcoming waypoint. The 300th arrived over Thurlow without losing a single plane on the mission to Dijon, France, and the only plane to claim a kill was Loda Bull, with not only one, but two, making Marshy and Tommy both very happy. Unfortunately, the 300th had still suffered casualties on the mission. Between the three selected squadrons, the 300th had lost nine airmen. One of them was Bob McGee's co-pilot, Lieutenant Eris Deal, who was killed by a flak shell that went off in the wrong place at the wrong time 
just before arriving over the rally point. Also among the entire 300th today, three airmen returned with recoverable injuries, and one returned with a severe injury, and that was none other than Lieutenant Timothy Winger, who also was at the wrong place at the wrong time in regards to the flak shell that took his left foot. In another sense, Timothy, in the words of Colonel Poole, was in the right place at the right time by catching the rest of the formation's mistake, and together, with the bravery of his crew, he led the way to the target and put the bombs right on the bullseye, knocking out the railway bottleneck. In fact, 90% of all the bombs dropped by the 530th Squadron landed on the target, whereas only 30% of the bombs from the rest of the formation, which came at the target from a different angle, hit the actual target. For his act of gallantry, Lieutenant Winger would be sent back to the States with an air medal to remind him of his bravery and difference that he made in the war effort. For Sal, the last time he would ever see his crew member was when they carted him off in the back of the meat wagon, heading for the hospital, still with the look of shock and terror frozen on his face. There were no see you laters, no best of luck to you, or even acknowledgement of this being the final time these two humans would ever exist in the same space again. While Sal didn't know what to expect, he wasn't even that close with Timothy. He was deeply depressed and saddened by this fact, while also being horrified by what had transpired on the mission today. What bothered him even more was the fact that at mess that night, Jack barely acted like he had lost a crew member today. To him, it was just another day at the office. Looking at the enlisted men after the debriefing, none of them seemed to be upset at the fact that Timothy was now gone. The only one who even acknowledged what happened was Beans, who simply said sorry to Sal before the crew went their own way. Was this normal for them? Sal thought to himself. Was he going to soon be as callous and hardened as they were? That night at the officers' club, Sal pondered these things and tried to reason with himself the perplexing nature of human callousness. Then to make matters even worse and more confusing for him, Sal watched Jack's mood change when Leslie and Moose walked in the club and took a seat among Jack, Parnell, and the rest. Seeing Jack show feelings of grief and sorrow for a member of another crew but not his own felt wrong, unfair, and even cruel. Sal quickly stood up and excused himself from the table and barely was even noticed by the group as they had their focus on Leslie and Moose. He then made his way out of the hut and headed back to his hut where he would lay awake for the longest night of his life.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. Please leave an honest review on whatever podcast app you're currently listening on. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canso 34 Studios, a DIY project that's helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we can do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for another episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Snafu.